Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, a podcast looking beneath the surface of Japan. I'm Oscar Boyd. On Monday, Naomi Osaka became the world's number one women's singles player after her victory against Petra Kvitova in Saturday's Australian Open final. The 21-year-old is the first singles player from Japan or Asia to top the tennis rankings in either the men's or the women's game. But her rise to the top also came with a dose of controversy. Earlier this month, one of Osaka's Japanese sponsors, the cup noodle maker Nishin, released its animated Hungry to Win advertising campaign, which featured Osaka alongside male tennis player Kei Nishikori. The advert depicted Osaka, who is of mixed-race Japanese and Haitian descent, as light-skinned, a move that was criticized by major media outlets around the world and resulted in a decision by Nishin to pull the ad. This week on Deep Dive, I'm joined by Bayer McNeil to discuss the controversy and why it touched a nerve with so many people. An author and activist, Bayer writes a column for the Japan Times called Black Eye, in which he looks at issues affecting the black community in Japan. Bayer, could you first describe the Nishin ad to us? What did it look like? What did you see? Well, it was it was anime, obviously, and it was a, a, a yacht. It looked like a giant, maybe a cruise ship, and on board were a bunch of anime characters, including Kei Nishikori and some white girl. And then suddenly, the name on the screen identified her as Naomi Osaka, and that was the beginning of all of this for me. And what was your initial reaction to seeing Naomi Osaka portrayed in that way? Oh, hell no. <laughs> oh, no, they didn't. It was a shock. It was a shock. I said, and it wasn't, I didn't even think it was a mistake. I said, they purposely changed the color of her skin for some reason. I wasn't sure of the reason, but I was sure it was done on purpose. For some of our listeners who perhaps haven't seen the ad, what kind of differences were there? Well, I wasn't expecting her to actually look like Naomi Osaka, but I didn't expect it to look like Becky either. Becky being the mixed-race uh, Japanese talent who's very popular on TV right now. Exactly. All right, but this, this woman was clearly f- four or five shades lighter. The hair looks like, I don't know, I what color is that, blonde, brunette? I don't know, but it's definitely not what the trademark hairstyle you, you expect to see when someone... Front, um, when Naomi Osaka is being discussed. And the nose looked like it was kind of trimmed a bit. And, uh, yeah, the only thing that gave it away was the earrings. <laughs> so in your column you described it, you said everything that distinguishes Osaka from your typical Japanese anime character was gone. And what was left, your typical Japanese anime character. So it really was a, a departure from you know, her actual appearance. Complete departure. And I think that's the the general consensus from Japanese and non-Japanese alike. Some people defending the ad, though, have said that her depiction is just anime style, or even that not many anime have darker-skinned characters in. Um, do you think this is a justification? Um, yes and no. Um, there are quite a bit, quite a number of anime that, that I have um, characters that are black or mixed race. There are a few, including the series that this is based on, which is Prince of Tennis, which has some characters that are of African descent, clearly, you know, definitively. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't accept that as an explanation for this type of uh, digression from reality. So what then do you think the reason was for Nishin 
whitewashing Osaka? Well, I have my my theories. You know, that's what you're asking for, the theories. I think that in Japan, generally, lighter characters are more appealing to a Japanese marketplace. And that would make sense to me if I were... If I were a company targeting my advertising at a Japanese marketplace, I would probably do something similar. I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> I probably I I would be I would be mindful of my market, my 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 target audience, and I would probably modify my I would adjust my marketing strategy to appease them. What's the Japanese response to the controversy been? Um, I've read some of the comments from Japanese people on some of the articles I've written about it. I've written one article in, uh, obviously, Japan Times for my column. I've also written a couple articles in Japanese. And the Japanese response to it has been, well, I don't think that uh, Nishin was trying to um, whitewash uh, Naomi per se, but this particular characterization of her is way off and they were definitely doing something that this was a mistake on their part mm -hmm. so it's, it's kind of they're trying to remain neutral on the issue so but not, not too critical not too critical of Nishin but at the same time cognizant that there's a problem here that mm -hmm. there's an issue here with with in the, the criticism that they're receiving is not misplaced so your column on the advert uh, went out in the Japan Times on the 19th of January, was soon picked up by media across the globe. What was Nishin's response? Initially, their response was Naomi was appraised of the artwork before it went out, and she approved it. If The way it was worded, their response, it made it to anyone who read it, it would seem that Naomi looked at this and said, okay, that wasn't actually what took place. But that's what was, that was the initial, initial response, was that we had no intention of whitewashing, and that all the work that was being that was done was um, approved by Naomi herself. But this was actually later refuted by Naomi Osaka when she was For asked me, to comment by the Guardian, right? Like it's obvious. Like I'm ten. It's pretty obvious. Um, so I, I'm not. I don't think they did it on purpose to be like like whitewashing or anything. Um, but I definitely think that the next time that they try to portray me or something, I feel like they should talk to me about it. Yeah, very kindly she did. <laughs> Push back a little back. Yeah, she did. Isn't she a darling? <laughs> She's very sweet. <laughs> Incredibly polite. Um, but so, so following all the controversy, Nishin decides to pull the ad, correct? Yes, they did pull the ad. I think is after the Japan Times article, after my column came out, um, uh, New York Times ran a a story they interviewed me about this issue and then they ran a story and then after that I think a lot of other media outlets picked it up I think it was The Guardian was next and then uh, CNN and BBC so yeah after that kind of pressure comes down on you yeah you, you really don't have much choice but to respond you know aggressively mm -hmm. <laughs> and they did but then afterwards after they cancelled the ad you wrote a follow up in your column in which you said that that's actually not what you wanted to see from Nishin so what do you think was the appropriate response coming from the company if not to take the advert off the air? Well, the ad could have been modified. You know, if they would have just made her brown, you know, <laughs> that was the major complaint, the color and the Eurocentric features, just fix them. Or, you know, admit uh, the problem, the misunderstanding, you know, and then 
say that we're gonna go into the we're gonna go back to the drawing board and, and work this thing out. And instead of giving a half-hearted apology, because it seemed kind of half-hearted, like, oh, we sorry you misunderstood us and you know, what? You know, so I think that uh they got some PR work to do over there, you know. What would have been the, the best response to this would be that in the future, um not I think their 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 actual response was we're going to be more careful with diversity issues. Do you have the exact wording here? Yeah, um, the exact wording was there is no intention of whitewashing. We accept that we are not sensitive enough and we'll pay more attention to that diversity issue in the future. Yeah. Not good enough for you? Um, it's a start. I'm not going to, you know, play word games with them. It's a start. But I would like to hear exactly what kind of things they would like to, how would they, how are they going to address their insensitivity and what kind of steps are they going to take to improve diversity? Because if you don't take significant steps, this is doomed to happen again and again and again. I mean, what I'm concerned about is that the response would be something to the effect of, we need to avoid working with you know, people of African descent because they're oversensitive and we're going to run into these type of diversity issues, whereas we never had these problems, or we rarely have these problems when we work with white people or with Japanese people. So let's stick to the, to the easy... I mean, to the, to the simpler clientele as opposed to working with black people. I don't want that to be the response because that's not the situation here, you know. But um, So do you think that's a real danger that Naomi Osaka I think Osaka that's a real faces? danger. I really think it's a real danger. I mean, Osaka's a superstar, so it's not going to happen to her. But the next person coming down the, down the pipeline, who knows? You know, they might, you know, Nishi might, you know, do a detour around them. If they instead learn how to, to maximize working with talent, of, of African descent, it would be more beneficial to the company in the long run because it's going to improve their image on a global basis as opposed to just going with the safe bet. One of our reporters today has uh, been researching into actually the kind of business success or the success of uh, Osaka's sponsors since she won the mm. uh, Australian Open on Saturday. They're doing really uh, well? Doing fantastically well. Yeah, um, she's great. Yeah. Why would you, you know... Uh, yeah, just make a few adjustments to your ad. Actually, they had a another ad running simultaneously, another campaign that was her and, and Kay playing tennis. And it's a black and white kind of deal going. This mm-hmm. was not bad. Yeah, this was pretty good. You could have continued with that one, you know, put this one on hold, you know, make some modifications, keep the other one going, and just roll with this, roll with this blow. But at the same time, make sure that you um, address this issue seriously because it is a serious issue. But... At the same time, keep it moving. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> but do you think this advert is symbolic of broader issues surrounding race and people of color in Japan? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, of course. How so? Um, well, the reason, that, the reason that a company like Nishin would be, would be inclined to make these type of modifications to appease their target audiences because their target audience is appeased by light-skinned people. And I've, I think that um, the issues that resulted in this particular problem continue. You know, this, even if they make some adjustments to, to the way they um, portray um, people of color in the future, the problem, the, the issues that made them feel that they needed to whitewash or made them feel that they needed to, to lighten her skin and, and adjust her features persist. And 
that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Why do you think overseas media paid so much attention to this story? Well, I think obviously because, um, well, uh, we were in the middle of the Australian Open and Osaka was, you know, the media darling and champion, superstar. And that, that's going to draw a lot of attention, of course. I think secondly, though, I think a lot of countries around the world are dealing with these similar issues of, uh, how to manage bi- issues with biracial people, you know, and how they're being, um, how, how to how to navigate these type of issues that niching is, has gotten into here. I think this is a curiosity for a lot of people in a lot of countries. So I think mm. that's part of the reason it was so appealing. And do you think anything positive uh, will come from the criticism that Nishin faced? Do you think other companies will learn to deal with this in a better, more appropriate way? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's going to be the best thing to come out of this, that companies are going to learn, you know, to to let let the actual let the actual talent be the guide, you know. I mean, I think that this all would have been avoided if Nishin would have made sure that Osaka was contacted beforehand because this would have never reached the public, I'm sure, if she had seen this representation of her. It would have never reached the public. She would definitely stopped it. So early last year, you wrote another article about the New Year's Eve performance on Nippon TV of one of Japan's most famous comedians, Masatoshi Hamada, who used blackface as a comical prop in one of his sketches. That article drew similar amounts of international media attention and Hamada faced a lot of criticism. But what was the outcome of that media attention and criticism? Uh, did you see any changes as a result? Well, Nippon TV didn't respond to me directly, but other media outlets, recognizing that this has an impact on all the media outlets here, did respond to me and did get in touch with me. Asahi TV, for example, also TBS television did. TBS was so concerned with what had taken place at Nippon TV that they actually were proactive and and got in touch with me and asked me to come to the station and talk to the staff and talk to the um, directors and producers at, at, at TBS about blackface and why it's problematic and how the station could avoid these kinds of situations in the future. And, and as a result of that, they've made some changes at the station. I don't see how why a company like Nishin cannot learn from this experience as well. And I actually, I hope they do. I sincerely hope they do, and I think there's a possibility that they will. So positive change is possible? Positive change is definitely possible. Well, thank you, Bayo, for joining us in the studio. Bayo McNeil's column for the Japan Times Black Eye is published monthly and can be found online at japantimes.co.jp. Next, staff writer Joel Tanzi tells us a bit more about Naomi Osaka and her career leading up to her recent victory in the Australian Open, and her title as world's number one women's single player. So Naomi Osaka first emerged on the scene in 2016. Uh, She made the finals of the tournament here in Tokyo uh, as an 18-year-old, lost in that final to uh, former number one Caroline Wozniacki, but certainly appeared to be a player headed for superstardom. But it wasn't all plain sailing from there, was it? No, actually, 2017, uh, she finished 2016 as the number 40 ranked player. Uh, and 2017 uh, looked to be her breakout year, but it was more of the year that failed to start for her. Uh, she never won more than two main draw matches at a single tournament, 
And by the end of the year, she had dropped all the way to number 68. So 2019 has started as a fantastic success for her. But what led to that success through 2018? Well, at the, at the start of 2018, she went in with a new coach named Sasha Bayan. Um, she, was, uh, she had dropped all the way to number 68, but she did find some modest success in the early part of that season. And by March, uh, when she won the Indian Wells tournament, it really appeared that she had found something with this new coach and, and she had really found her game. Um, she did hit another kind of rough patch over the summer where it's just she just seemed off. She lost to uh, Angelique Kerber at, the, at Wimbledon on center court. And she admitted to being overwhelmed during that match. She admitted that the moment really got to her. Um, at that point, it still seemed like she was, you know, a year or two away from from real Grand Slam success. But uh, as we all know now, you know, at the U.S. Open, you know, she went on that unbelievable run to the final, took out her idol Serena Williams in the final, and and it's just been an amazing journey since then. Am I correct in saying it was fourteen straight matches at Grand Slams? Um, on the way up to that Australian uh, Open win. She's now won, after the Australian Open win, she's now won 14 straight matches at Grand Slams. Um, she's world number one, you know, the first Asian ever to, to get to that point in singles. And, um, you know, she really is, you know, one of the most exciting players to come on either the men's or women's tour in, in at least a decade. What then do you think are the keys to her success? I think for starters, I mean, she's got... A big, you know, powerful game. She's got a very strong serve. She can attack with the forehand, with the backhand, and she moves really well. So all the elements are there. Um, what kind of slowed her down in the early part of her career, I think, was her mental focus. She she kind of lacked, a, you know, a certain consistency in her tennis. And and I really feel like since she's got um, buy-in as her coach, and and you know, credit to her as well. She's really worked on that part of her game, and, and that's really helped her you know, soar to these heights that she's now reaching. I think because physically, even from the very beginning, she was clearly very gifted. I remember reading somewhere that she was hitting 100-mile-an-hour forehands by the age of 16. Yes. We, we've, we've known for a while that the tools were there, but the tools are only you know, really half of it in tennis. and you know, It's such a solitary sport, and you really need that mental game um, for the big moments. And you know, we saw that. In the, U- in the U.S. Open and as well as the Australian Open final um, where, you know, there were some difficult moments that she had to overcome and she was able to regroup herself and, uh, and get there. So part of her character and whether she likes it or not, she's defined by the fact that she's both of Japanese and Haitian descent. We spent, you know, the first part of this podcast talking about that. Um, but how does she end up playing for Japan? Because she did have the option I believe, of playing for the U.S. early on. Yeah, she is an American citizen. She's lived most of her life in the U.S. Um, her family has come out and said that they always knew that uh, her and her sister, Marie, who's also a, a tennis player, um, would play for Japan because uh, they grew up in what they said was a Japanese-Haitian household. Um, they, the girls always uh, felt Japanese, and uh, it was important for them for, uh, for Naomi and Marie to, to then represent Japan. The Japanese Federation, I think, has been very good to her. Uh, um, they've, the, the U.S. Federation, on the other hand, uh, maybe was a little bit slow to realize her talent. Um, so that may have played a role. And how much does something like sponsorship um, or the potential for sponsorship uh, play into this? Well, I'm, I'm sure 
you know, at least deep down, there's there was some thought about that. I mean, the family hasn't said anything uh, about that, and Naomi certainly hasn't. But if if you look at the sponsors that have lined up behind her um, before, you know, her Grand Slam success, and and certainly after, um, you know, we're talking uh, Nissan and Nissan and ANA and the list goes on. Uh, the sponsorship potential in Japan is enormous. Uh, the U.S. marketplace is quite crowded. They have a lot of tennis stars and, and stars in other sports. Um, Japan does as well, but there's a real chance for her to be, you know, a, a household name. And I think, you know, I think she's already there now. What then is in store for Naomi Osaka? Do we have another Serena Williams in the making? Well, I, I think it's a little bit too early to, to put her into that category. I mean, Serena's been at this for um, almost two decades now. And, and, you know, she's a legend in her own right, of course. But what Naomi Osaka is doing is incredible. No one since 2001 has won their first Grand Slam and backed it up with another Grand Slam at the very next tournament. Um, even Serena did not was not able to do that herself. Uh, the sky's the limit. The, the talent's there. The mental focus and uh, concentration is there. Um, the coaching is there. The will is there. Um, she could go down as an all-time great. Well, thanks very much, Joel, for joining us today. Thank you. You can read all of Joel Tanzi's reporting for the Japan Times at japantimes.co.jp, where you can find all the latest in news, lifestyle, culture and sports from Japan and beyond. Deep Dive was hosted this week by me, Oscar Boyd, and our guests were Bayer McNeil and Joel Tanzi. Thanks to both of them for joining us this week. If you like Deep Dive, please leave us a review on whichever podcast service you're listening through. It really does help. You can also subscribe to this podcast and find more episodes on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.